you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the NASB. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. But let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning you have blessed us with. Indeed, Lord, it is a joy to worship you. And Father, as we study your word, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for our friends at work, our employers, those around us, O oh God. Because we know their greatest need in life is salvation. And we have found that salvation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have a message to proclaim. It is a message of hope a message of forgiveness, and we know they need to hear this, God. So, Lord, as we study your word, cause us to see the responsibilities we all have as Christians in the workplace. May we be salt and light in that place, Lord, so that people would see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Whatever will be achieved this morning, Lord, you will be careful to give you back all glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, a world report said that 70% of people employed do not like their jobs. And they also discovered in that study that 90% of the 70% who don't like their jobs don't feel like getting up in the morning to go to work at all. And so what we have here is a large group of people who are very unhappy. And we know that can be a problem because unhappy people tend to be unproductive in the workplace. They don't perform well. There is little love for quality and little concern for excellence in the work that they do. And unfortunately, for most employees, they're more concerned with leisure and comfort than they are in giving excellent service. And you need to understand that Christians can also fall into these areas as well as non-Christians. And so our text this morning is very important, it's relevant, and very practical because we all need to be reminded about our responsibilities as Christians in the workplace. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing here to Timothy. Timothy was pastoring this church in Ephesus at this time, and he is reminding this church and all others as well to take a good look at the responsibilities they have as Christians in the workplace. So that's going to be the focus of today's preaching. And we're going to see two important principles in our text. First, we will learn how you should work for a non-Christian employer. How many of you here work for non-Christian employers? Can you raise your hand? All right, it's quite many of you. Secondly, we're also going to see how you should work for a Christian employer. 
But before we dive into our text, I think it is first important for us to have a biblical theology of work. Because that just sets the foundation of what we will be discussing this morning. And you need to realize how we view our work and how we work matters a great deal more than we might imagine. So here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to rethink the way you think about your work. As work must be viewed within a theological framework so that we can learn to integrate our faith and work. So just to set your thinking a little bit, let me bring you to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Word of God says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, the most notable thing about this passage is that it happens before the fall. We know Adam and Eve sinned against God in chapter 3, but this is chapter 2. And God gave Adam the command to work. So we can say by just reading this passage, work is not a result of sin. Work is not part of the curse. God designed man to work. Now, we know stress and sweat and the difficulties we experience in our workplace, all those things became part of the curse, but work in itself is a gift. Work in itself is a blessing. So for those of you who are working, can you say this with me? My work is a gift. Therefore, I love my work. I love my work. Did you eat breakfast this morning? Or maybe you don't love your work. But I hope at the end of today's sermon, you would be able to say that with much conviction. Because work truly is a gift from God. It is a blessing. Therefore, we should love our work. Now, here's another thing you need to understand. Not only are we created to work, but all of our work is a sacred duty. Now, some of you might find that a bit strange and you might be looking at your job and saying, I work as a call center agent and I don't see anything sacred about it. Or I work in a kitchen, I cook meals, I prepare meals for people, and there's really nothing sacred about that for me. Or you may work in an office as a secretary, or maybe you're one of the grocery baggers at the local market, and you're asking, how in the world is that sacred? Well, if you're a Christian... And if you know God's Word, you know it is sacred because as Christians, everything we do in life must be an act of worship to God. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, oh, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of what? Of who? For the glory of God. That phrase, whatever you do, includes your job. It includes your career. Whatever your employment might be, whatever the form of employment might be, it is a sacred duty before God if you are a Christian. Whether you teach, whether you work on computers, whether you paint houses, whatever it is that you do, it is sacred before God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to erase the straight line between the secular and sacred, and draw a circle and put everything in your life in it. Your business, your career, your job, your responsibilities as a parent or as a husband or as a wife, 
That means everything you do is with reference to your relationship with God. Everything that you do is sacred before Him. That is a very important reminder because some of you might be saying, well, in order for me to serve the Lord, I need to be a missionary in the mission field. Or I need to be a pastor. I need to be a full-time Christian worker. Now, those things are vital, and it really depends if God is calling you to do that. But remember this. If you have a job, remember, that is the most vital place where your Christianity will ever be expressed. You come here on a Sunday morning. You spend about two hours. If you have a small group, you, you meet with your small group once a week. But most of the time... You're in that cubicle during the week. You're in that office. You're in that company. You interact with your colleagues at work, with your business partners, with your superiors. John MacArthur once said, what is happening on the job for you is the single greatest articulation of Christianity that you will ever have in your lifetime. As much as I want to share the gospel to your friends, to your co-workers, to your boss, it's hard for me to do that because I don't have access to them. I don't know them, but you guys know them. You have a relationship with them. And my prayer to the Lord is that as we study God's Word, as we know our responsibilities as employees in the workplace, we would have a heart for the lost. Think about that co-worker that you have. That person that you see from Monday to Friday, do you desire that that person, that friend of yours would come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior? I hope that's your desire. And so it should be noted that for many of you, God has called the workplace, your workplace to be your primary mission field because it is in the workplace that many of you have the opportunity to share the gospel to most people in a personal way. And so as we dive into our text, I want you to see that the idea here is to live your Christianity before men in such a way to make the gospel believable. Paul wants us to know how we should conduct ourselves so are those to whom we have responsibilities of obedience in the realm of work. So let's go to verse 1 now. Let's read the text. Paul says, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves... Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, as we read this, some of you might find it a bit strange. And you might say to yourself, Pastor, isn't slavery evil? Isn't slavery illegal? Because Paul is calling these slaves who became Christians and are now part of the church that Timothy is pastoring. He is calling them, he is commanding them to respect their masters. And some of you might say, I'm not a slave, so how can this verse be relevant to me? Well, there's something you need to understand about first century slavery. It's not the same kind of slavery that we know of today. So let me give you a little bit of background into some of the terminologies here. The word for slave is the Greek word doulos. And doulos is a person who is in submission to someone else. A doulos or a slave, had a long term of responsibility for obedience to a master. And during the first century, slaves were primarily domestic employees of a family. They were the cooks. 
They were the household managers. It also included manual laborers. And believe it or not, it also included those who belonged to the professional class. So there were slave teachers. There were slave doctors. There were slave administrators. And so in this context, the word slave can really be synonymous with employee. Because slavery was an accepted format for social life. It was an accepted economic system. In fact, it was even an honored system. That is why when Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, he was proud to be identified as a doulos or as a slave of Jesus Christ. Peter does the same thing in his epistle, so does James and Jude. So there was something inherent in being a slave that was dignified. And we need to understand that because we have a very different understanding about slavery in our time and in our culture. When you hear the word slave or slavery, for example, you might easily associate it with the utterly unacceptable slavery of American history, which was based on racial discrimination. It's a kind of slavery that was abusive, it was evil, and certainly it does not glorify God. It's not the kind of slavery that we are talking about here. Of course, there were abuses in some cases, but it was not the norm. And slavery at that time, like any kind of employment relationship, was both good and bad depending on the people involved. So there were good masters and there were bad masters. So when you think about slavery, you have to understand that it was a way of life back then. It could be good and bad. So the point is this, slavery is not the issue, but rather, whatever form of employment, whatever the form of employment might be, it must be regulated with the right attitudes. So let's look at our text, and first we're going to see how you should work for a non-Christian employer. Again, Paul says, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, the phrase to regard worthy uh, in the Greek is a verb, and that basically means to assess by objective criteria and not by internal feelings. Now, why is that important? Because there are times in the workplace you may not feel like honoring your boss. You may not feel like respecting your boss. But the assessment of that position and the relationship that you have with him demands respect. Remember, he's the one providing livelihood for you. He is the one giving you salary every month. God is using him to be a channel of blessing to you. Don't forget that. And you must keep in mind as you go to work this Monday, you must say this to yourself. I am serving him and I am not serving me. Why do we need to keep that in mind? It's because when you perceive your employment as self-serving, you will strike and complain all the time. See, the Puritans were so heavy on this teaching, they taught continuously that work was to be perceived for the common good and never to be perceived as a way in which you indulge yourself. John Calvin, one of the reformers during the 16th century, said, and I quote, 
We know that men were created to busy themselves with labor for the common good. Martin Luther, who was also a reformer during that time, said this, and I quote, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your boss does. Your co-worker does. You know, we are saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works. But you know you are genuinely saved when your life is changed. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Remember that. Now, someone, someone might say, all right, you're telling me I should honor my boss. You're telling me I should serve him. You're telling me I should respect him, that I'm not to work for my own gratification not to finance my selfish indulgences. Okay, I get that. But pastor, you don't understand my boss. He can be very unreasonable at times. In fact, he has a temper. He's hard to please. He can be too demanding. And he can be harsh. And to be honest, I don't like his personality. I don't like how he is leading us or our company. Now, before you make that as an excuse not to submit to your boss or not to respect your boss, let's try to think biblically first about this issue. What does the Bible say about this? Well, fortunately, God has, God has a word for us. And, and in Peter's epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this. Peter says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle. Now, all of us here would want to respect good and gentle employers. Amen? We say amen to that. But remember, there's this phrase, not only. So let me read it again. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In some translations, it says to the perverse or to the harsh. And you might say, well, that just describes my boss. And maybe his face is popping up in your mind right now, all right? He's harsh. He's unreasonable. He's unjust. But again, Peter tells us we are to respect him still. Now, I know it's easier said than done, so Peter doesn't stop there. He continues. He gives a motivation, and it's found in verse 20. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, this verse tells us that there are times we Christians in the workplace can suffer persecution. Maybe your boss wants you to juggle the book sometimes to increase the profit in the company. He wants you to make certain compromises. And you know, it's not pleasing to the Lord at all. And so you refuse to do that. And because of your righteous behavior, you are being persecuted by your boss or those around you. Remember what Peter says. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That means God knows what you're going through. He sees your situation. And when you endure, the Bible says it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, let me be clear here. 
Because some of you might say, you know what, Pastor, my boss is persecuting me. And then the reason why you are being persecuted has really nothing to do with your faith. But it's because you're always late at work. Okay, you don't perform well. Let me remind you, that's not persecution. You're suffering the consequences of being a bad employee, all right? But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, remember, God sees, God knows, and He will sustain you. So, Peter gives us a motivation, but again, he doesn't stop there. He gives us an illustration. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not only does he give you a motivation here, but he gives you the perfect illustration. He gives you the perfect example. You know, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was righteous in all of his ways. No deceit was found in his mouth, and yet people accused him of blasphemy. They hired false witnesses. They mocked him. They rejected him, and eventually they killed him. They crucified him on the cross. But how did Jesus respond? Did he retaliate? Did he threaten? No. Did Jesus have the power to destroy his enemies? Certainly he did. By just saying a word, they could all be destroyed, but Jesus refused to. You know why? Because he submitted himself to the will of the Father. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying to the Father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So what kept Jesus on the cross was not really the nails on his hands or feet. It was not the Roman soldiers. What kept him there was his love for you and for me. Because he understands the only way we can be set free from the power and the penalty of sin is when he takes our place, bears all our sins, and dies our death. And if you know the depths of God's love, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be like him at home. You will be like him when you're driving. You will be like him when you're in the workplace. A Christian will be known to be a loving person, a forgiving person. And so when you think about your unjust or harsh boss, remember the reason why he is like that is because he does not know the Lord. But you know the Lord. And God is calling you to reach out to Him. May you live out your Christianity in that workplace so that when your boss sees the way you work, the way you respond, the way you submit to Him, he will see the power of God's grace. He would see the power of the gospel displayed in your life. And through that, he would eventually come to know the Lord. 
So Peter doesn't let us off the hook. In fact, he strengthens what Paul just mentioned in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. He's saying it doesn't matter what kind of boss you have. You are to honor him. Amen? Okay, no amen to that. Amen? Amen. So the attitude is very clear. You are to respect your non-Christian employer. And here's the reason. First, Paul gives the command. He gives you the what, and then he gives you the why. The reason why we are to respect him. Why does Paul do this? Paul knows that instructions concerning behavior, apart from some kind of rational, do not automatically make sense. Um, these days, my four-year-old son, Marco, responds to most commands and corrections with the one-word question, why? So when I ask him to brush his teeth, why, Daddy? Marco, get dressed. You have to go to school. Why? Marco, come on. Let's have some prayer time now. Why? There was one time I was trying to put him to bed and did not want to go to sleep. And out of his frustration, he asked me, Dad, why do I have to sleep every night? And he was not joking. He was serious. He wanted a logical explanation to that question. So there I was late at night explaining to him, I was explaining to him why it was important for human beings to sleep every night. And thankfully, he agreed and he slept. Well, again, as, as Paul gives us the reason, he knows that specific teachings or instructions in the Christian life could fall on deaf ears if it came across as impersonal or irrelevant. So why are you to respect your boss? Here's the reason. So that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. In other words, the way you work relates to how people will perceive God and the gospel. Now, if you work in such a way to dishonor your employer, then you will bring reproach upon the name of God and the gospel. People will say, what kind of God do you have? You're always late at work. You're one of the most lazy employees we have. In fact, you're not a person of integrity. You're not a person of character. What kind of transforming message do you have? Because your life doesn't look too transformed to me. That's a consequence. If you don't live out our faith in the workplace, we will give unbelievers reasons to blaspheme the name of God and the gospel. And we don't want that happening. Charles Spurgeon once said, the world does not read the Bible, but they sure do read Christians. They observe the way you live. They observe the way you work. They observe the way you respond to stress and pressure. The way you work speaks of the reality of your God and the power of His gospel to change lives. So the place where the rubber meets the road is really on the job. Who you are in the workplace. You now we can come to a gathering like this and say all the spiritual things and sing all the Christian songs and 
recite all the wonderful Bible verses. But who are you really at home or at work? If I ask your boss or employer, how is he doing on the job? Will he say, oh, you know, he's one of the most hardworking people we have. Excellent character, provides excellent service, very diligent, very hardworking. You have no problems with him. I hope that's your testimony in the workplace. Remember, you work not to finance your own selfish indulgences. If you're a Christian employee, you work to advance the kingdom of God. You work to see people saved in that workplace. Profit, salary, all those things are secondary. Our primary calling in life is to glorify God. We may not be full-time pastors or full-time Christian workers, but all of us here are called to be full-time Christians 24-7. You see, my passion is to see people want to Christ in our city. That's my cry. That's my prayer. But I know that where that will happen the most, with the most power and impact, it's not in the walls of this church. But it is within the confines of where you work, in the midst of unbelievers. And this is something that I always remind our church in Living Word IT Park. Several of them are, are working in IT Park. And there are about, I think, 100,000 employees working in IT Park. And I always tell them, guys, you are the ambassadors. You are the missionaries of the Lord in that company, in that building, in that office. Represent Him well. As you go to work, may you have this mindset. As I go to work, I want to make disciples. I want to be able to share the gospel. And by the grace of God, some of them have been responding to that call. There was this young lady who attends our church, and she works in one of the buildings in IT Park. And there was this, this woman who made a comment about the weather. And they're complete strangers. They don't know each other. And she felt, okay, this is a, an opportunity for me to engage in a conversation with her. And so she ended up befriending her. She, to make the long story short, she invited her to one of our Bible studies in IT Park. The gospel was shared to her. She got saved. And three Sundays ago, she was baptized. God used that casual conversation to bring that woman to a saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it happened in the most unlikely place. You know where? In the CR. And when I heard about that story, I was so encouraged, and I told our church, guys, even as we go to the CR, we can make disciples. Amen? Do you have that desire? Do you have that passion? You can give the Lord a big hand for that. Every last Thursday of the month, we do evangelism in IT Park, and we go by pairs, and we just approach people. And one Thursday night, uh, two of our members approached this guy who just had his 
uh, dinner in Sugbo Mercado. Um, and he was, I think, checking Facebook. And so they approached him and they asked him, can we have 10 minutes of your time? We want to share something important. At first, he, he thought that they were insurance. Okay, so at first, he was very apprehensive. But these guys shared the gospel to him. And here's the interesting thing. Three days before the gospel was shared to him, this unbeliever prayed to God, Lord, lead me to the truth. I'm lost. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. Three days after God answered his prayer, the gospel was shared to him. And he too got baptized three Sundays ago. I want you to get this. When you study the Bible, especially the book of Acts, of the 40 miracles recorded in Acts, 39 happened outside church walls. 39. Only one miracle happened in the church, but the 39 miracles happened outside the church. In fact, the first time the gospel went out into the world, not a single apostle was involved. They all stayed in Jerusalem. But these Christians, as they went to different places, they began sharing the gospel to others, and churches were planted. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, said this in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are regular Christians who had regular jobs, but who were burning. They were burning for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how many are we here this morning? Maybe a thousand plus? Could you imagine if all of us went to work this Monday with this mindset? Could you imagine the things that God can do in that workplace? Christian, you serve a great God, and nothing is impossible with Him. You might say, well, my my boss is so worldly. My friends in the workplace, they have no interest for the things of God. How sure are you? You never know. You never know. They might be seeking. They might be longing for something real, something that would truly satisfy their souls. And we have the answer. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to man's misery. So what are you... What are you going to do about this? Two things you can do. You can say amen to this and be completely indifferent and apathetic about it when you go to work. Or you can say amen to this and tell God, Lord, I am committing myself to be the missionary in my workplace. And God is going to do great and mighty things church. He will show you His power. And I want to thank, uh, t- take this time to thank you guys for, for your prayers because um, I know you guys pray for all the Living Word churches. Uh, I know you're praying for our church in IT, and I just want to share some of the things that God is doing there um, that would encourage you because He is a prayer answering God. Now, we've always had the desire to reach out to the schools near our area. 
So there was uh, one time, I think it was last month, I wrote a letter to one of the principals in one of the schools nearby, and I asked the, him uh, if they're open to have a meeting in our church because we want to help them. We want to know their challenges, uh, the challenges that they are facing in that school. And so it was really an act of faith because I did not know how he would respond. He's not a believer, but I took the chance. I took the risk. He replied, and he said, yes, we're sending 19 teachers. So last Wednesday, here's what happened. 19 teachers from that school came to our church. We had dinner together. We ministered to them, and I asked them, how can we help you? And one of the teachers said, we have about 2,000 high school students, and we only have three counselors. And some of these students have suicidal tendencies, and we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. This is an unbeliever giving a suggestion. And here's the suggestion. Can you train us in the area of counseling? Wow. And we know we have a counseling program in our church. And, and she said, we don't want it to be just a one-time thing. Can you train us weekly or regularly? And they said, we have about 600 graduating students. Can you organize the retreats for them or for us? You can give the Lord a big hand for that. We opened a Cebuano service uh, two months ago, and one of the sergeants from Camp Lapu-Lapu started attending. And by the grace of God, we were able to open a Bible study in the camp, and that's been going on for about a month now. And this sergeant said, Pastor, we're renovating this hall because we want this to be a church facility. We want to have a church service inside the camp. Isn't that incredible, church? And the reason is because they want their wives, they want, they want their children to be part of the church. Guys, we're talking about our soldiers. We're talking about thousands of students. We're talking about teachers. I know we're doing some ministry with the police, right? This is the, the kingdom of God advancing. Amen, church? And this is because we have a great and awesome and mighty God. He is a prayer-answering God. So when you share the gospel in your workplace, I, I pray that it is believable. And what would make it believable is when you work with excellence and passion. So that's the goal. Now you say, well, fortunately in my job, I have a, a Christian employer. How then should I view my work and my relationship with Him? Verse 2, And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. So how can a Christian employee disrespect a Christian employer? Well, only in the sense that you devalue their position as your authority because he is a brother or sister in the Lord. You might say, well, I'm a deacon in the church. I'm very involved in our church. I handle a lot of Bible studies, but my Christian boss does not even have one. 
In fact, he comes to church late. And maybe because of that, you are tempted not to respect him or not to submit to him. But what Paul is saying here, when you go to work, maintain the right working relationship. So the attitude is clear. You are to respect your Christian employer that he gives a command, but let them serve them all the more. And so the point is, if you're a Christian employee and you have a Christian employer, it doesn't give you a license to abuse that relationship. It doesn't mean you could take an extra break because you want to do your devotions. Or when he asks you to do something, gives you a deadline, you tell him, you know, boss, I don't feel led by the Spirit to do that right now. Um, in fact, I am prompted by the Spirit to pray on the job instead of work. It doesn't mean you could be late to work because you attended a Bible study. It doesn't mean you could do mediocre work and just tell Him that the Lord just did not lay it on your heart to do anything more than that during that day. You don't want those foolish excuses. You are to serve Him even better. And here's the reason, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Remember, your Christian boss has the same desire as you. He also wants to see people saved. And when you give him excellent service, that contributes to the success of his business or to the success of his company. Now, God can use that success for his influence to increase. God will give him more opportunities to have business deals more resources. So you need to think of your relationship with Him as, you know, your partners in the gospel. So for you, for those of you who are working for Christian employers, do you pray for your Christian boss? Do you support him? Do you give him excellent service? Remember, what, what's at stake here is the gospel your testimonies as believers in that company or in that business. Chick-fil-A is the eighth largest fast food chain in the U.S. And by the way, the owner uh, of Chick-fil-A is a Christian. His name is Dan Cathy. And one time when he was interviewed, here's what he said. He said, we sell chicken, but not to sell chicken as an end in itself. We sell chicken so that we can advance the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. So this is not just a word for Christian employees. For those of you business owners who are here, for those of you who, who have employees working for you, remember, your goal is the same. You want people in that business of yours you want your business partners, your cli clients, your employees to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That is our main calling in life. And, you know, John Piper was very instrumental to enable me to see things in that proper biblical perspective. He preached a sermon in May 20, 2000 that God used to change my life. 
he was speaking uh, in the fourth Passion Conference in Memphis. And it was a very famous message because that was the day he gave his famous seashells message. It was a day those students at Passion Conference wouldn't forget. And even people who weren't there, like myself, still remember it. After he opened in a word of prayer, he took a deep breath and he started by saying, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you have to know a few basic, glorious, eternal, unchanging truths and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Five minutes in, he gave a comparison nobody forgot. And he said this, and I quote, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards were both killed in Cameroon. Ruby was 80 years old. She poured out her life for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick, among the poor, among the dying, in the hardest places, in the most unreached places in the world. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby, she was also pushing 80. They went from village to village in Cameroon, ministering to the sick and dying. One day, the brakes of their car gave way. Over the cliff they go, and they were both killed instantly. And John Piper asked this question, is that a tragedy? And this morning, I ask the same question to all of you who are here. Was that a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, a whole life devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. Is that a tragedy? You know the answer, right? The answer is no. It's not a tragedy, Piper affirmed. And he said, I'll read to you what a tragedy is. He pulled out a page from Reader's Digest, and he read it to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softballs, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he said. Imagine them facing the creator of the universe to give an account of what they did with their life here on earth. And they simply say, Lord, look at my shells. Or, Lord, look at my 30-foot trawler. Look at my car. Look at my trophies. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my bank account. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? The way not to waste your life, Piper said, is to give God glory for every gift. Because everyone, from a new car 
to physical safety, to your own next heartbeat is grace bought and paid for through the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's my challenge to all of you this morning, whether you're young or old, whether you're working or retired, now is the time to serve God. Amen. Now is the time to glorify Him with your life. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. But what you have is this time. Live for His glory. May our lives be all about giving rather than taking. May it all be about sharing than receiving. As what City Stud said, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And so, church, as you go to work tomorrow, may your creed match your conduct. May your belief match your behavior. May your doctrine match your deeds. So when your boss or when your colleagues at work ask you, why do you work so well? Why are you full of joy? You can tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know God can save them. Amen? So church, are you excited to work tomorrow? Amen. Amen. We have a greater reason to work, guys. It's not for money, not for profit, not for our own selves, but for the glory of the God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We live and work for Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. We've heard the word of God preach. But we know every time it is preached, it demands a response. And so I'm going to challenge all of us this morning as we rethink the way we think about our work. Do you have a desire to see your friends at work saved? Do you want them to experience what you have experienced as a Christian, the joy, the peace, the forgiveness that comes from God alone? If that is your desire, I want to pray for you. And just for me to know if someone desires that, can you just raise your hand from where you are? Praise the Lord. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, your word, Lord, is sharper than any double-edged sword pierces our heart. And we know, Lord, you're like a surgeon, Lord. Even though your word can hurt us sometimes, we know it is for our own good. It is for our own benefit. And so we come before you, Lord, in humility, and we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for the many times we have viewed our work just as a means to get money. When we go to work and not really care about our unsaved friends and employers. 
I pray that you would change our hearts, Lord, this morning. That you would give us a biblical perspective about our work so that as we go to work tomorrow, Lord, you would have the desire, Lord, to work with excellence. You would have the desire and the passion, Lord, to, to make disciples as we work, to share the gospel to them because, Lord, they need you. They need your grace. Only you can save them. And, Lord, we have the message that can save them, the gospel message. It is a message of hope, love, and forgiveness. It is also a message, oh God, that reveals your justice and your holiness. Because, Father, we, as sinners, we deserve death. We deserve hell. But out of your abundant grace and mercy, Lord, you had a plan. You made a way. Father, you sent your only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life for us. Because that's what you require, Lord. And we can never attain or we can never accomplish that. But Jesus, you lived a perfect life for us. And you died an obedient death for us as well. Because only your death on the cross can fully satisfy God's wrath and pay for our sins. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for changing us, Lord. Thank you for your word. We have a greater reason to work tomorrow, God. We want to work to see people saved in our workplace, oh God. We are praying for their salvation this morning, oh God. I pray that you would even begin to prepare their hearts, oh Lord. We know, Lord, that they need you, oh God. And so as we share the gospel to them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would grant them spiritual life that they may respond to the gospel message in faith and repentance. Use our lives, use our businesses, use our work to point people to you. And whatever has been achieved this morning, God, we want to give you all glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand.